Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Our guest is Marilyn Gist, Emeritus Professor here in the Albers School and author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. Released this past fall, The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility has been well-received, including very favorable comments from leadership gurus such as Marshall Goldman and Ken Blanchard, who said the book belongs on the desk of every CEO and elected official in the U.S., which would be really great for book sales, Marilyn. It would be. (laughs) Marilyn joined Albers in Seattle University in 2003 to head up our executive leadership program and subsequently founded the Center for Leadership Formation and launched our Leadership EMBA program, which with its distinctive curriculum has been consistently ranked in the U.S. News & World Report Top 25, including as high as number 11. Prior to SU, she was at the University of Washington, where, among other things, she was an endowed professor and headed up the UW's EMBA program. Earlier, she was a faculty member at the University of North Carolina and a noted researcher of leadership, all of which she brought to bear while heading up our Center for Leadership Formation. Marilyn retired from Seattle U in 2019, but has been keeping very busy with the writing of this book and her consulting and speaking. So welcome, Marilyn. Welcome to the Leadership Playbook. It's really great to have you here as kind of an insider, right? Thank you. And to think, you know, that just a year ago, you would not have dreamed of having the dean interview you for a podcast, (laughs) and the dean would not have dreamed of interviewing you for a podcast. So our world changes really fast now. It does. Thank you, Joe. It's a delight to be here. Great. So I'm going to get started with some questions, if I may. Sure. My first question to you is, you've been studying leadership for many years. When and how did humility start to emerge as a key for effective leadership in your thinking? What's interesting, Joe, when I stepped into the executive leadership program to to running that, there were a number of students, as you know, who came from certain companies consistently year after year. And I was struck, for example, by just the universality of positive feelings that I would see among students who were leaders within Costco. I felt some of the same from students who were leaders within Expeditors, and it really made me curious about what's going on in those companies that's generating this enthusiasm. Because, you know, when you're, when you're working with them outside of the company, you hear a whole lot of things, and many of them are not very positive when people talk about their leaders. But I was, I was hearing just very, very positive things consistently. And as I gradually got to know and work with, for example, Jim Senegal of Costco, I realized he was a humble leader, not necessarily what I expected out of a CEO of a large multinational company. And so that was one of the first clues I had was just there's something about um, a certain type of leader that generates a level of engagement and passion for the organization that a number of other leaders were not doing. Okay, so that kind of leads to my next question, and I think you may have started to answer, and that is you made a decision to organize the book around profiles of leaders and their humility. So how did you get to that point where you decided that's the way to do the book? 
A couple of things. We don't always see that style being modeled. And we were also in an era where in terms of our, our national government, that was a style that was not being modeled. And I wanted to be able to show that this was not a backwater concept. This is something that can and does work and works very well for a lot of what I would call big brand organizations. And so I was looking specifically for leaders who had some credibility around this topic of humility because they were and had been running sizable organizations that most people would recognize by name. So are there different forms or styles of leader humility, or is it all pretty much the same? Just curious how wide the river is on that, so to speak. <laughs> I would say the river is fairly wide and fairly narrow. And what I mean by that is I think there is a range of personalities. You could have extroverted leaders, introverted leaders. You can have charismatic, non-charismatic leaders. You can, you know, have leaders who like large organizations and a lot of structure or smaller, more nimble organizations. So I think there's a lot of latitude in that. But when we're talking about humility and the way I'm defining it, which is feeling and displaying regard for others' dignity, there's a narrow lane. There are a number of components to how we do that. But, you know, you're on a continuum of am I showing that sort of humility, which is in a relationship, in a stance with other people, does their dignity matter to me? Or am I just steamrolling ahead with what I think we need to do and their dignity can go by the wayside? So I think in that sense, it's got to be fairly narrow. We're either doing that or we're not. I mean, it's a little black and white. There's a, a range of it. But there are some leaders who are really clueless on this dimension and others who are really expert at it, whether they've done it intentionally or not. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, since you've put out the book, you've no doubt interacted with a lot of folks who have read it. Is there something that is difficult for people to grasp about this concept of leader humility? You know, you did talk a little bit about it's not about being meek or weak. So I'm just curious if what you've run into since the book was published along those lines. Well, I think that is close to the challenge I've seen with some people. Some people get it immediately. and I get lots of positive feedback about, thankfully, someone has, has given us language that we need to address something really critical in leadership and has raised a, a variable that's super important. But there are other people who are on a learning curve because their initial reaction is, well, you know, humility doesn't work with this idea of being strong as a leader. Leaders we think of as needing to be decisive, be strong, be independent. So how does that square with humility? And they are coming from a place initially of thinking of humility as a weakness. But it's kind of like, you know, the earth looks flat, but it isn't. It's counterintuitive that it's round and it's counterintuitive that humility is actually a strength for leaders. And I think the way of understanding that is found in the way I've defined it, which is feeling and displaying deep regard for others' dignity. And once people start to reflect on that, they typically go, oh, okay, I get that. That, you know, that's not a weakness. It's really important. So if I'm a leader without humility, is there any hope for me? Can I learn how to be humble or do you have to come that way? Depends, Joe. We might need to have a sidebar conversation. 
Can leaders be developed? I've spent an entire career thinking the answer is yes for most people. So there are two essentials, I think, for someone gaining humility or developing more humility if they don't have it. One is a reasonable amount of self-awareness. You know, are they able to look at themselves reasonably, objectively, recognize their behavior, where it's working, where it's not, see their own weaknesses? And I think most leaders have at least some self-awareness. So if they've got that, you know, that's the first prerequisite. And the second is they have to be interested in doing it. I've had conversations with one or two leaders who go, well, I can see why that's helpful, but you know, I'm just not interested in doing it. I like command and control. It's working for me. I'm not going to change. So a person like that is probably not going to learn, even if you were to put them in a training program. What I would say and do say back is that it may seem like it's working for you, but you don't see the opportunity cost. You're not seeing how much you're losing by people being in a, an environment where there may be fear and intimidation or where they're disengaged because you're stepping all over their dignity. So they're phoning it in. They're giving you the minimum they have to do. So to you, it might seem like it's working, but if you're not feeling the energy and engagement in your group, chances are it ties back to your lack of humility. So in your book, you really told a lot of stories about leadership. Maybe you could share with us maybe one or two of your favorites. My personal favorite is always the Jim Senegal story because it happened to me when I first took over executive leadership program in hours and someone said, you need a speaker and it was short notice. And they suggested, you know, a couple people I might call and Senegal was one of them. And I didn't know him at all. And I knew Costco was this multinational company. So I expected when I called to get his assistant and, you know, give her the date, typically it's a woman and say, you know, can he speak? And not expecting a yes, because it was just a couple months away. And when the phone rang on the other end, the answer was Senegal. And as you know, he's a little brusque, not necessarily what you would describe as a warm, fuzzy person. I stumbled through my request, really shocked that he had answered his own phone. And he, you know, what's your name? What's your phone number? Well, I have to check my calendar and get back with you kind of thing. And when we hung up, I just sat back and I thought, boy, you know, I must have interrupted an important incoming call. He's going to pass this off to his assistant. I'll get a call back and be told he's unavailable. And about 10 minutes later, the phone rang. I picked it up. Marilyn, this is Jim Senegal. That date works. Where do you want me and what time? And I was just floored again that somebody in a position as high as his had the, what I now would call humility, to call me back personally. That when he had said he needed to check his calendar, that was honest. That's exactly what he needed to do. He could have easily passed the call back to an assistant to return it. I wouldn't have felt bad, even if it had been declined. But that he went the distance of actually placing the call back himself because he had told me he'd get back to me, just spoke volumes. And it was an early insight into why I found so many people working for Costco so passionate about the company and it was actually an early insight into what later became hundreds of stories about Senegal that I heard, all of them glowing over the years. 
I also appreciated the encounter with Alan Mulally when I began to bring him into doing a little bit of guest lecturing for us. Another individual who had a lot of renown, a lot of position, but who carried himself in very humble ways, always concerned about other people's dignity. And then John Noseworthy in the book, who was CEO of Mayo Clinic, I liked the way he talked about being a neurologist, placing you in a situation where you're dealing with people who are struggling with often tragic kinds of symptoms or illnesses, and how humbling it is to realize that even with all of your advanced training, you can't solve everything. And often that you need a team of experts, and they're all equally competent, and you have to humble your own ego in order to get everyone around the dining room table figuratively to figure out how to help the patient. So those are a few of the examples I really learned from in doing the research for the book. Great. You know, I've had the privilege to interact with two of those gentlemen, Alan and Jim, and I know exactly what you're talking about. So I think I'm right when I say the book was uh, finished or largely finished before the pandemic and before the Black Lives Matter movement. So if I'm right, I'd, I'd like to know what you think is in the book that's relevant to us as we try to grapple with these two big issues that are now an important part of our environment? I think it's even more important now, and I I would add a third to that, and that's the transitional nature of national leadership and just the divisiveness across the country and how we're dealing with people, whether it's in families or workplaces, who have very differing views, conflicted views. And I think in all three of these situations, leaders need to be mindful of supporting other people's dignity. So from a pandemic standpoint, we've all been in situations where we're leading either frontline workers or we're working from home and trying to lead an organization that way. And work from home, for example, poses probably about as many challenges as as frontline workers are facing. They're just different. There are people I've talked to who've said, you know, I'm not set up physically with a space to work from home well, or I've got, you know, myself, my spouse and two kids are trying to learn all competing for the same computer or a couple of computers, lots of distraction going on, the sameness of it day in and day out. And I think leaders need to have the humility to respect the other person's dignity. And we haven't talked a lot about what that is, but it's their sense of self-worth. And there's a personal component to that as well as just, you know, life itself being fairly sacred. And by respecting the personal component, it means that we have to understand their needs, be reasonably empathetic with them, and try to navigate the individual spaces people are in as we deal with the pandemic. I think on the Black Lives Matter thing, it's very interesting because, yes, the book had just about gone to print, and I rescued it at the last minute to put like at least one sentence in there around, you know, sort of racial equity issues that we're grappling with. But at the heart of a lot of the racial justice movement is this issue of dignity. Have we as a nation, do we as leaders in every sector really have respect for the sense of self-worth that other people have? And clearly the George Floyd murder, if you will, that triggered the whole summer of unrest 
was a situation where, you know, there was violation of dignity at the extreme, not only the personal dignity that the criminal justice system would have said were procedures that should have been followed, but actually the sanctity of life was taken. So I think we would get beyond a lot of our tension in this area if we realized that at the heart of any kind of relationship is needing to respect the dignity of the other person. And people who are from marginalized groups, whether those are racial groups, gender groups, nationalities, whatever, have a right to self-worth around those unique qualities that they have. And we need to be curious about them and respectful of them. And, you know, the third one, just the healing that our new president is asking for across this divide of political tension is the same thing. How can we come together, honor the fact that we do have differing views, find more graceful ways of entering into a conversation and backing down from seeing people with a different view as being the enemy so that we can get down to discussing what's the appropriate policies to deal with the real challenges we face. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So since the book has been released, you've heard from a lot of readers, you've done a lot of podcasts and done a lot of interviews. What's turning out to be the most gratifying thing about having written that book? What are you feeling best about right now? I think the fact that it is landing well when people read it, the reviews have been almost universally five star. I think there's a couple of them that are four star, one three star on Amazon, but you know, the vast majority are five stars. So that, and I don't know who most of those people are. So that's kind of encouraging. I am seeing a lot of social media feed. It has drawn a lot of interest in France, for example, but also in Norway. So there's some international uplift. I've had people contact me from Singapore, as well as from Brussels to have conversations about it. So seeing that it's it's being picked up globally, at least on an initial basis, is very encouraging. And then domestically, I think the spread could always be faster, but what I'm not hearing is people say this doesn't matter or it's not important or it's just another leadership book. What people are saying is, wow, this is new. This is important and we've got to pay attention to it. So, you know, humility is a very important quality for a leader, but given everything that you've studied about leadership, what are some other important qualities to be successful as a leader? The one I would put almost as equal, maybe not quite equal, because fundamentally leading's about relationship, and it, to have a healthy relationship, you have to support another person's dignity. But I would say vision. You're leading by setting direction for people. And, you know, there's some leaders who want to do things correctly, but they focus on maintaining what's going on. And I think. Most organizations need to anticipate change or react to change or some of both. And leaders need to have the capacity to set good vision as they guide people forward. And if they're not able to do that, then I think the organization is going to stagnate. So that's the other one I would say is really important. 
Great. That's a great answer. And it raises a question in my mind. Is there a next book around vision? Probably not. My publisher has asked me to write another book. Put it this way. He said, you should begin thinking about your next book. This was the day the final manuscript went in. And I am. It took me a number of years to land the ideas for this. I need to feel I have something unique to say, and I'm not there yet. What is happening, though, is I'm building more of a body of work around leader humility. So I have some assessment tools that I spent the last couple months kind of geeking out with the data, and they are likely to come online and be available within a month, I would say. And I'm working on a couple versions of training programs that might be, they'll be web-based for now because we're not open, but kind of a master class in leader humility or leading by working together, I should say, where humility is an underpinning for that. And my hope is to start launching those in April. And it might be that at some point downstream when the world reopens, we can actually do them in person. So there's a little bit of that as well as just some speaking and consulting work. Great. We'll sign us up for those, Marilyn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll need them. You know, my next question is, is really a three-part question, and it's very simple, really, though. It's when it comes to leadership, what is one piece of advice you want to give to three different groups, our undergrad students, our master's students, and our executive students right there? all different places in their lives. So I'm sure each one of them deserves a slightly different piece of advice from you. Absolutely. So starting with undergraduates, you know, it's a wonderful new generation and they bring to the adult world a set of skills and insights that are vastly different than what I, I had at their age. And they're maybe missing a few things. And so the piece of advice I would say is that you know, we've evolved a cancel culture. We've evolved a lot of anonymity in online spaces. We've evolved a sense that if we don't like what someone's saying, it's okay to simply slam that person, troll them or put them down in some way. And my message to an audience at this age and stage would be to realize that any healthy relationship requires that you respect another person's sense of self-worth and that a lot of that kind of online culture and norm doesn't translate well into face-to-face -face interactions. It actually doesn't work real well online either. It, it causes a fair amount of harm. But that relationships are going to be important as you move into your career. And you probably are going to need to develop strong people skills, regardless of what your occupation will be. And so thinking about dignity and supporting others' dignity will help you quite a bit. For graduate students, you know, you have a range, Joe, of professional MBA students who are many years out of undergrad to some of your other degrees, MPAC or the MFA or what have you, where students may have only had one or two years since their undergrad. So there's a bit of an age range there. For the more advanced ones who are either in leadership or moving toward you know, their first management role, I would encourage them to think about peer relationships. A lot of times as you want to advance, you think of having to be an outstanding individual performer, which you generally do if you want to move into a leadership role eventually. 
But some people go about that in a hyper-competitive way. And I'm going to encourage that they think about doing it in a somewhat collaborative way with their peers and having, again, that respect for other people's dignity and looking to work together as opposed to strictly compete. For the executive students who are typically mid-career and in mid to senior leadership positions, I would say to realize that the higher you go, the more important people skills are compared to technical skills and that you are really creating a container for the work, both in terms of the vision that you're setting and the culture, the health of the organization. And that centers on the relationship. And for whatever unit you're running, whether that's a a branch, a division, or the entire organization, the culture starts at the top. And it's what is it that you are bringing to that dynamic? And is it one that's very respectful of other people's dignity? Again, going back to that word, or is it not? Is it one that's hyper-competitive? Is it one that features a lot of put-downs and you know, we think we're cool because, you know, we can cut people to pieces and leave them frustrated in the process. So you're creating that culture and you're never going to get the most out of people by damaging their dignity. And it's not necessary. You can be very strong, set high standards, but do it in a way that talks about the behavior and the work that's needed and not the personality, not the, the human behind it. Well, that is terrific advice for our students. Thank you, Marilyn. I'm so glad I asked that question. It's the last question of this interview, but it's been really great to reconnect with you on a podcast. And thank you so much for all your great work at Seattle University over the last two decades. And you've certainly left us a great legacy and had tremendous impact, not just on our institution, but all our alumni, all the students you worked with. It's been great to get your latest insights on leadership and the importance of humility. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you. Thank you. Seattle U was a highlight of my working career, and it's an honor to be back. So wish all of you the best. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albert School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.